Thanks, Jeannie, for the reading. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Yaron, if you haven't met me before. It's our last week here with you, which is always a bit sad after doing a few in a row. Um, but we'll be looking at... <laughs> we'll be uh, looking at the last uh, little bit of Haggai uh, together. Um, if you haven't been with us um, for the series so far, yeah, we've just been making our way through this book together and we're up to the last little bit, the uh, fourth message of the prophet from uh, this book. So keep Haggai open if you've got your Bible there um, and we'll work our way through even though it's only a few verses. I'm going to pray again as we look at this together. Father, thank you that you are a good and gracious God to us always. Um, That as we've sang this morning, there's um, so many reasons to praise you. There's so many things even that we don't think of um, that reveal your goodness to us uh, that slip so easily from our mind. Thank you that one way you show your goodness is you continue to speak to us through your word and we pray you would do so this morning as we hear the words of scripture read to us, as we think upon what they mean and I pray you'll enable me as I speak to um, be faithful and true to your word. I pray that you'll give each of us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About 200 years ago, the world was shaking. Uh, In 1815, a volcano in Indonesia exploded in what's known as a super eruption. Around 100,000 people in the surrounding Indonesian islands died as a result of the eruption. But about 90,000 more died in the Northern Hemisphere due to an ash cloud the size of Australia blocking out the sunlight which dropped temperatures and affected harvests for a big swath of the world. Crops were failing in America Uh, Europe had its worst famine that century and riots began to break out in big cities because of the shortage of food. Uh, impoverished, Impoverished conditions in Ireland led to bad hygiene which caused an outbreak of typhus and in the coming years that would kill around another 100,000 people. Delays to the monsoon system in India also created bad conditions leading to disease and there was a cholera outbreak and cholera began to spread from Bengal in India around the world and in the coming years it would kill millions of people. In China, starving people were eating white clay out of desperation People were killing their children out of desperation or selling them into slavery because they didn't have enough food to give them. And as uh, crops failed in China, opium became the main cash crop for many farmers and that had devastating effects in China in the years to come after that. 
1815 had also seen the, uh, a major political upheaval. Napoleon Bonaparte, who was probably one of the greatest ever politicians and generals in European history, was finally defeated. By the time uh, he was defeated, the wars between his army and their enemies had cost the lives of around three million people. Now that he was gone, the victors were redrawing the map and the rules of the world. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live through 1815 and the following years? Do we think that anything like that could happen to us in 2019 or beyond? Maybe not in a fairly... Uh, tranquil and pleasant environment like we have in Brisbane. But we have to remember nature is no more safe in 2019 than it was back then. We don't know when the next super disaster might occur in the future or whereabouts it might occur. And it seems like the likelihood of a massive war or political upheaval in our region in our lifetime um, becomes more likely with every passing year. We want and we hope for security, stability, safety, but there's no guarantee we will always enjoy these things. In Haggai's final prophecy, God tells his people to expect events that will rock the world even harder than those of 1815. And when we read biblical prophecy, there's always that difficult question to answer. This was in Haggai's future, but what about for us? Are the events described here things that happened in our past Or are they things that will happen in our future as well? Will our world be shaken? As we look at the scriptures this morning, I hope to convince you that we should indeed expect a great shaking. Haggai's final message to the Jews is this. All the kingdoms of the world will fall but God's King, the Christ, the Messiah, will reign. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, uh, this is the second time we've heard Haggai speak about uh, a superquake. You could say this is one of his key themes along with the temple that we've seen uh, being a focus. Back in verse 6 of Haggai 2, we heard God promise to shake the heavens and the earth and here he does again. Last time the focus was on restoring God's house, the temple. Shaking the wealth of the entire world so it pours into the treasury of the temple. This time the focus is on complete Uh, political upheaval in every nation and the divine annihilation of their military forces. Here's God's words through Haggai again. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. 
I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. What God is promising here is nothing less than a complete demolition job on the political order of the world. He's going to level everything and start again. But after that comes the reconstruction and God's rebuilding priority centres on this guy called Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the governor of the territory of Judah under the Persian king. But he himself was a royal descendant of King David. He uh, should have become the king of, of Judah one day. But sometimes when an heir, though, is denied their throne, they have to settle for the next best thing. Thirty years after Napoleon was vanquished, his nephew Louis Napoleon was exiled in London. Many French regarded him as his uncle's rightful successor to the throne. But France had become a republic again in 1848, which means there was no royal office vacant to be filled. So, he went back to France and he ran for the presidency. He became the first president of France and upon election he was referred to as the Prince President. Zerubbabel is kind of a prince governor. He exercises considerable power in Judah but he's still the deputy to another king, a foreign king. He doesn't have the royal status that his grandfather and his ancestors had. He was holding the highest office that he possibly could under the new status quo. But as we've just seen, God has promised a right royal shake-up. The God who can knock down kingdoms with his breath has a special plan for Zerubbabel. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God is going to make Zerubbabel something more than he was. In God's reconstructed post-demolition world, he could look forward to far greater prestige than just being a governor under the Persian king. But what does it mean to be like a signet ring? It's an interesting shift because most of Haggai's ministry, the focus has been on temple, buildings, houses, And so when we come to the end of his prophetic ministry, we might expect an image like a house or a building remaining, standing after everything else has fallen. 
but instead we've suddenly got this talk about jewellery. So what are we to make of it? Signet rings were worn by kings in ancient times to bear their royal cipher. You and I sign documents with our signature. Businesses have a company seal that they stamp onto things and sometimes governments even use wax seals. Kings would impress their signet ring onto a wax seal and it would then have their ancient version of a signature on it and show that that seal carried with it royal approval or royal authority. Back in Genesis, to show how ancient this was, Pharaoh gives to Joseph his signet ring to empower him to act as the ruler on Pharaoh's behalf in all of Egypt. Zerubbabel will become so representative of God's kingdom and his authority that his imprint's going to be on everything in this post-apocalyptic new world order that God's bringing about. And this only really makes sense though if we consider two significant prophecies from earlier in the story of God's people. 500 years before Haggai, King David wanted to build a house for God, a, a temple. The prophet Nathan gave him a message from God which explains why the Jewish temple and the Jewish monarchy are always in the picture together. Here's what God said through Nathan. Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Down a few verses. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The king who had wanted to build a house for God at the centre of the nation became the king who God made um, his royal house established in the nation forever. Because David's son and successor Solomon built the temple, the house of God, the temple and the house of David, his royal dynasty, are always intimately linked together. And so as the biblical story goes on, we see things happen to them together. Like for instance, when the King Jehoiakim is carried away into captivity into Babylon, uh, the treasures from the temple are also carried away by the Babylonians at the same time. When the temple is destroyed by the Babylonian army in 586 BC, the Judean monarchy is also destroyed. King Zedekiah is killed by the Babylonians. Jehoiakim, who was Zerubbabel's granddad, had been cursed by God for his disobedience. 
Jeremiah prophesied that Jehoiakim was rejected from being God's signet ring. He's going to be thrown away. God declared that he and his children would not rule in Judah again. And so we have a promise on one hand that David's throne will endure forever. But then a promise that Jehoiakim's kingship will be extinguished and his sons will never rule after him. And this helps us appreciate Zerubbabel's unique position in the biblical story. He's the rightful heir to David's throne but he's the grandson of a cursed king. God's promise to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring was a declaration that it would be the Davidic blessing that would define him and not the curse upon his grandfather. The people could now begin to hope for something that before would be impossible, a restored kingdom in their land with a son of David on the throne. When Louis Napoleon became the French president, he held office for about three years and then kind of like the US presidents have term limits nowadays, uh, he was going to have to leave the role at the end of the three years. Rather than play by the rules, he broke them. He seized the presidency by force And a year later he won a national referendum where supposedly 97% of voters supported him being named emperor. He reigned for nearly 18 years and to this day he's the longest reigning uh, head of state in France in the last 200 years. This kind of gives us the picture here of what's happening with Zerubbabel. The question we ask after hearing God's prophecy is, is he just going to be governor for a little bit longer and then he'll be king again? When God wipes out all of their enemies, will he put Zerubbabel on the throne? Well, you see, that's the problem. Zerubbabel never became king. The Old Testament moves on and he just kind of fades away. We know who his sons were, uh, Meshulam and Hananiah, they don't become king, nor do any of his grandsons. 400 years go by before there would be a Jew in Judea who would be called king again. The problem is it wasn't one of Zerubbabel's descendants. So what happened? How did God fulfil this promise? Zerubbabel's comeback, if you like, happens on page one of the New Testament. If you have your Bible with you or your phone with your Bible app, uh, open with me to Matthew chapter 1.
And if you've got it open there, then look down at verse 12. And there he is, several generations back in the genealogy of Jesus, is Zerubbabel. Uh, Many of you would know that the genealogies in Matthew and Luke have um, some differences between them and they can be difficult to explain. Um, But many people believe that Matthew traces Joseph's family back to David whereas Luke presents Mary's family line. The significant thing with Zerubbabel is he appears in both lists. He is the most important figure in the genealogy between David and King and Jesus as king. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people praised him as the son of David, this is the closest thing in centuries to the Jews seeing the promises that God made to Zerubbabel uh, come to pass and the monarchy be restored. But then a few days later, the man who would be king of the Jews was hanging naked and lifeless from a wooden cross. The death of the man that many believed to be the Messiah was catastrophic for those who were hoping to see Israel restored under a Davidic ruler. Either Jesus of Nazareth wasn't the real deal or God was a deal breaker. But when Christ rose from the dead and then ascended to the right hand of God to be enthroned in heaven, he showed God to be faithful and God showed him to be authentic. The Messiah was enthroned forever to rule over God's people as the son of David. He is the signet ring of Zerubbabel's line. Everything that God approves of has Jesus' name stamped on it and all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. As we noted earlier in Haggai, Jesus has become our temple, the place where we draw near to God, where we can have communion, fellowship, intimacy with God. There will never be another Davidic king or temple. The risen Christ is bringing God's kingdom in all its fullness and we shall soon see it in the new heavens and the new earth. But this leaves us with one thing to consider, the question that I raised earlier. Will our world be shaken? If God has made Jesus his promised signet ring ruler, then has he already demolished all the nations of the world and their armies? Or is this something that the future still holds in store? You 
Again, if you've got your Bibles open, then uh, turn to Luke chapter 21. Here we see Jesus describing another destruction of Jerusalem by a powerful foreign army. An event which came to pass in 70 AD. Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfil all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I don't know about you, but to me this sounds like the exact opposite of the hope that's been given through Haggai's prophecy. Instead of God making the temple great by pouring the wealth of the nations into it, foreigners will desecrate it. Instead of God levelling the nations so only the restored kingdom of David remains, Jerusalem falls and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish kingdoms and powers, trample over it. But look at what comes next. Jesus says, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And Revelation 19 fills out that picture of what Jesus is talking about at that time of his coming. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun 
And with a loud voice he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. The coming of Christ will see a world upheaval like never before. Nothing will ever be the same again. Everything that is of sinful humanity will perish and only that which is established by God will remain. How does your heart feel about that future? You may feel troubled because it's completely out of your control, because you don't like change, because you like a lot of things in the world how they are and this coming of Jesus is threatening, disturbing. Maybe you're still trying to establish yourself as secure and successful in this world. And the thought of Jesus coming is going to interfere with your plans and ambitions and your desires. It's time to take a stock take of what your hope is in and whether it will withstand this day that is coming. You wouldn't buy a house if you knew it was going to be demolished next week. You wouldn't move into a prestigious neighbourhood if you knew that it was going to be subject to a great natural disaster in the coming months. You wouldn't spend time sucking up to someone rich or powerful if you knew that very soon they were going to be dead. This is our SMS alert that a disaster is coming. You're reading in advance the obituary of every powerful person that you're tempted to curry favour with. Uh, We should rejoice at the thought of the day that Christ comes to reign and the nations fall at his feet. We sang joy to the world twice this morning. If you go and read the story of how that carol was written... It wasn't a Christmas carol at the beginning. It was written about the second coming of Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's how we're supposed to feel about the coming of our Lord, even though it means terrible things for many things in the world that we are familiar with. We rejoice because... God's people will never be troubled by their enemies again. We rejoice because we'll never be without a place to belong. We rejoice because we'll never have to fear wandering away from God again. We will dwell in Christ's kingdom where God is always central and always with us. So if over the last few weeks in response to Haggai's message... If you've begun seeking lasting change in the world, 
by praying, by loving, by proclaiming the gospel, then keep at it because the results of those actions will withstand the great coming shaking of the world. They will endure forever. If you've been convicted to fight against worldliness in your heart, selfish ambition, self-sufficiency, then again, keep at it. Because the more you die to this world and its lusts, the less you will fear any loss when it collapses. I wonder if any of you have seen the new ABC TV show Tomorrow Tonight. Anyone, anyone seen it? Basically what it does is a panel considers what could be breaking news uh, next week that would radically dominate the headlines and shake the, the world. They've considered things like every text message that's ever been sent becomes publicly available because of cyber terrorism or the world's water supply suddenly gets compromised or, or, or runs out. Scenarios like that make us pause and think, yes, how would our world be changed? What could, kind of things would play out? But in 2019 and the years to come, I want you, when you hear news that seems to rock the world, uh, to let it remind you that these things are just a small vibration compared to the shake-up that's coming. Use the news of wars, disasters, epidemics to wean your heart off this crumbling world uh, and the hollow promises that it makes. As Jesus himself said, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray. Father, the coming of your son to shake and overturn the kingdoms of the world is a terrible and fearful thing to ponder. And yet any of us who have our safety and security in Christ have much to rejoice in at the thought of that day. So I pray for each precious person here this morning that you will help their hearts not to be filled with fear of what they might lose, of what they love in this world, but you would help their hearts to be filled with hope at the thought of your coming, of all that there is to gain in Christ and that there will be true joy Lord, help us because our hearts are so quick to turn away from you. Many of us this day will leave church this morning and go back to thinking of other things, thinking of what we need to do in the world this week to be successful, to be secure. Lord, help us not go through this day and this week without seriously pausing to consider the reality that you are coming and not resting till our hearts find reason to rejoice in that.
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.